All right, morning, everyone. Would you like to open your Bibles to Luke 14? On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves in chapter 14, verses 28 to 35, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Luke 14, verse 28. Jesus said, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If it is is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You may be seated. Father, I thank you for these verses as we continue, well, really conclude this morning this uh, incredibly powerful passage about discipleship. I'm really not sure if anything else in all the scripture approaches the the call that these verses have for those who might be on the fence associated with Christ. And so we see the cost that we're uh, commanded, I think uh, asked is too light of a statement, commanded to consider when following Christ. And so I would pray that the full weight that Jesus wanted these verses to have when he preached them 2,000 years ago would come to bear on everyone who's listening this morning, Lord. As always, I just ask to be your vessel for you to meet with your people during this time so that justice can be done to uh, these powerful words. And I pray, Lord, that anything I've studied uh, you would bring to mind, uh, assuming it's from you, to uh, deliver to the hearts of those who are listening. And I would pray, especially if there's any unbelievers here today, Lord, who... Um, that they would count the cost. And as, as I believe these words were intended to turn people away uh, who were not true disciples in Christ's day, perhaps that would even happen today, Lord, but at least people would recognize what side of the fence that they're on. As we talked about last week, they wouldn't be uh, lukewarm, or as Joshua said to the Israelites in Canaan, choose today this uh, whom you will serve, and that people would make that choice today, Lord. So I thank you for this time. I ask that you can be pleased with it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> amen, amen. I want to invite you to uh, consider the, did I tell you the name of the sermon? The name of the sermon is First Sit Down and Count the Cost. And I want to begin by inviting you to consider the duality to the gospel, or let's say the good news and what uh, you might consider the bad news. And so the good news, because there is much of it, uh, as Eldon had beautifully shared in his devotion, that Christ takes the punishment that our sins deserve. I mean, uh, good almost seems like an understatement, just absolutely incredible news that the wrath has been, that has been built up against us because of our sin was poured out on Jesus, and he was willing to drink that cup in our stead. More than that, or in addition to that, we're given the very righteousness of Christ. Not only are we forgiven for our sins, but we are also declared righteous in God's sight as though we have lived the life that Jesus himself lived with his very own righteousness that is imputed to our accounts we're going to spend eternity in heaven with the Lord. Uh, if, if the gospel only afforded, only benefited us to the end of this life, uh, how insignificant it would be. It carries us into the next life, bringing us into eternity in heaven itself with Christ. And then the other, another aspect of the good news, I've been told, hey, don't tell people about not going to hell because that's the bad news. Well, I think it's incredible news that we don't have to go to hell. I don't know when it would ever be not be good news to learn that you don't have to go to hell. And so some of the other good news of the gospel isn't just that we get to go to heaven, but that we don't have to go to hell. But there's also, the reason I mention this is there's all this good news, but there's also a cost associated with following Christ. And in these verses, Jesus invites us to consider that cost. And basically, whether we are uh, willing to pay it in our relationship with him. We've been reading about this cost the last few weeks. If you briefly look back at verse 26 and 27, Jesus talks about some of the cost. He tells us that if anyone is going to come after him, that we must, what? Hate, he says, 
or we've talked before, uh, love less than Christ, but to use the language here, hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, hate even our own lives, referring to the self-denial that accompanies uh, the Christian life. And he says, if people won't do this, they cannot be my disciple. And then verse 27, probably the most shocking statement associated with discipleship, Jesus says, whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so this is the cost associated with following Christ. It is, uh, can be difficult or it can be a hard way. And Jesus told us as much in Matthew seven fourteen. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago. The gate is narrow and the way is what that leads to life? The way is hard, Jesus says. He's, for, he's referring to discipleship or following him is a hard way, as opposed to the wide way, which is what? Which is easy and why it would be filled by so many people who would want the, the easier approach. So guess what can happen? Because the way is hard or because there's this cost associated with following Christ, and it's really a cost that people might not uh, experience right off, it, it might be one that they are even discouraged from understanding as present when they've been presented with a, a false, false gospel or kind of a name and claim or health and wealth type uh, gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And so people kind of launch into this discipleship or following of Christ, not expecting it to be hard. And what happens? They start, but then they also end up stopping. So they begin but they do not finish. Now, briefly turn a few chapters to the left to Luke 8. We're going to turn back to Luke 14 in a moment. Luke 8 contains the parable of the soils. Now, if you're anything like me, you think about the, par- the parable of the soils and how many, how many good soils, for lack of a better way to say, how many good soils are there? We kind of think there's one good soil. We think one good soil and three bad soils. And there's truth to that, but it would also be true to say how many of the soils started off good or started off well? Only one finished well, but three of the soils started off good or well. Look in verse 6. Some fell on the rock, and what happened with this seed? Look in verse 6. What happened with it? It grew. Is that good or bad? That's good. There is a response. There is growth. But then it withered away because it had no moisture. Verse 7, another soil. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns, it says here, the thorns grew up with it. Now, I know it's saying that the thorns grew up, but it's saying that the thorns grew up with the seeds. So we've got another soil that grows or produces or responds positively or well to the seed that is sown, and then the thorns that are choking it out. Look at verse 13 for Jesus' interpretation of these two soils. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. They're excited. They are enthusiastic, but they have no root. So they believe for a while, and then in a time of testing, they fall away. I'm not going to get too much into this because when it says that they believe for a while, I don't think that means they believe unto salvation because these are, this is uh, soil that was never saved. But it does, by saying they believed for a while, it's saying that they began or they started, but they didn't finish. They ended up stopping. Now, if you write in your Bible when it says fall away, you can circle that phrase and you can draw a little line and write the word apostasy which we're going to talk about more toward the end of the sermon. But I just want you to see here that this soil is an apostate soil, or it is a soil that fell away. Verse 14, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature, but the fruit still grew. There was a beginning to it. There was a starting to it. They grew up enough that the thorns could choke it out. Two of the three soils started and then stopped, which Jesus wants to prevent. With this teaching we're looking at this morning, Jesus wants to prevent soils that start and then stop or grow but do not mature. And this brings us to lesson one. Jesus wants people to first sit down and count the cost 
So part one, unbelievers don't start and then stop. So unbelievers don't start and then stop. And then turn back to Luke 14. The verses we're looking at this morning are entirely to prevent individuals from starting and then stopping. Look at verse 28. To prevent this, Jesus says, Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Now, just pause for one second while I introduce something that could almost look like a a contradiction here in Scripture. On one hand, we have verses like, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 6, 2, which quotes Isaiah 49, 8, which says that today is the day of what? That presents an urgency associated with the decision or coming to Christ. When it says today is the day of salvation, that's code for don't put it off, be saved today, don't wait next week or next month or next year. And so this sounds like people should decide today. But when we read these verses in Luke 14, what does it sound like Jesus is discouraging? A decision today. It basically sounds like he's saying what? Don't be hasty or quick. Instead, first sit down and count the cost or figure out whether you're really committed, whether you really want to do this. Now, how do we explain this? There's no contradiction in Scripture, but there is a balance that must be struck. We should, in our evangelism, press people to make a decision. We should um, tell people that they're commanded by God's Word to repent and put their faith in Christ. We should say that there is an invitation that they are commanded to respond to. If you want to think back to when we looked at the banquet, the wedding banquet, there is a wedding that they are commanded to attend. But at the same time, we need to tell people to turn to Christ, but we also need to tell them the cost associated with doing so. So present the urgency, but also present the cost so that they can make an informed decision, which is why I don't think it's ever good to appeal to people's emotions. Unlike much of the evangelism that does take place, when you appeal to people's emotions, you're going to get an emotional response that is not going to last when what comes? Trials, suffering, temptation. And Jesus uses two metaphors to illustrate this. The first, uh, building a tower, and the second one, going to war. Let's consider the first metaphor about building a tower. We are not going to relate to this as much in our day as in Jesus's day, because in our day, there's an amount of financing you can receive. You can go and receive tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to build, um, you know, whatever it is, whatever the project is. And what typically happens is people build something, and instead of running out of money, they just end up finding that it ends up costing much more than they initially thought, right? But you don't usually, you'll encounter people who built something, and, the, and as they lament, they share that it was, uh, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars more than they thought, but you rarely hear people say that they ran out of money. But in Jesus' day, people ran out of money because they could not go to the bank to be financed. And so they could start building, and when they ran out of money, then they couldn't build anymore. And so what would you actually see in Jesus' day that you don't see very regularly in our day? Buildings that aren't built yet. In Jesus' day, people couldn't get that loan, so when they ran out of money, the building stopped, even if they were right in the middle of building. And so to prevent this, Jesus says, sit down, take out your pencil and paper, go ahead and do all the math associated with this building project to determine whether you're going to be able to complete it. And if they don't, then they could end up with this building that is half completed. And then look what happens in verse 29. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So if you start building something and you don't finish, you're going to look silly, and you're even going to have people that mock you about it because people are going to know that you ran out of money, and you, at least in Jesus' day, and you weren't able to finish the project that you had started. Now, we know that when Jesus looks like he's speaking very practically, I mean, to be 
to be candid, it almost looks like he's given us construction advice, right? And I think we know deep down inside that's not primarily what Jesus, or even secondarily, that's not really what Jesus is doing at all here. He doesn't, he's not really helping us understand building projects, is he? Instead, he's doing what he always did, using something physical or practical, uh, an earthly example to illustrate a heavenly principle or teaching, to use the physical to teach the spiritual. So what's the spiritual truth? Or what are the spiritual truths that Jesus wants to reveal to us through this metaphor? Well, first and most obviously, he's trying to discourage people from starting to follow him, but then stopping later. And then second, if you look at the end of verse 29, what does it say can happen to people who start building but then stop? They can be mocked. They can be ridiculed. Well, what does that look like? Think of how bad it appears when people claim to follow Christ or claim to be Christians, but then later deny that they are. Or we would, I could say they commit apostasy. So picture people who have talked about their relationships with Christ. They have told other people that they should have a relationship with Christ. Perhaps they've told other people that they're sinners who need a Savior, and these are all things that we should do. Maybe they've even criticized other people's religion, if it isn't Christianity, pointing out the, the uh, reasons that it's wrong. But then these same people who have preached the importance of Christ to others stop following Christ what is going to happen to those people? They're going to be mocked. They're going to be ridiculed by people who are going to say things to them like, you said you were a Christian. You said I needed to be a Christian, and now you're no longer a Christian? You were telling me that you're so thankful Jesus died for you, but now you don't even believe that Jesus died for you any longer? It would have been better if you had never claimed to be a Christian in the first place than to have made that claim and walked around and told other people about it and then to have turned away from Christ. Basically, it's a criticism or condemnation of hypocrisy, of saying one thing and then changing from that. And so Jesus warns, if you start a relationship with me, if you claim to be my disciple and then you stop, you need to be ready for people to mock you or to ridicule you. Well, as bad as that sounds, it pales in comparison to the warning contained in the next illustration. Verse 31, Jesus says, What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate or decide whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So if kings are wise and they're going to go to battle, they're going to first sit down and determine whether they have enough soldiers or large enough or powerful enough army to defeat the opposing army. Because if they don't, and we, do, we see this in the Old Testament, when kings went and fought battles and they lost, not only did they lose soldiers, what else did they lose? They could lose wealth, they could lose cities and their kingdoms, they could lose their nation, it could be conquered and then become a vassal state to the opposing nation that defeated them. But here's the problem, and there's no, you know, satellites that look down and tell you miles away, at least in the Old Testament, the size of the uh, army you're going to fight. And so, king, so kings had to make this decision about fighting, but they could be wrong. And so at what point does a king actually learn that the army coming against him is twice the size of his army? After that army has come within sight or at least reach of the messengers that, that he has sent out to determine the size of that army. He doesn't know till the army has left. He doesn't know the size of the opposing army until that opposing army has started heading toward him and someone can report back to him that that army is twice the size of mine. And so look what he says here in verse 32, when he recognizes that he doesn't have enough soldiers to win because the opposing army he's learned is twice the size of his army. In verse 32, if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. After the opposing army has started heading toward him, he tries to make peace with the opposing king. And he also tries to do this as early as possible. Look at the end of the verse, or the words, while the other 
is yet a great way off. The king is going to try to settle for terms of peace as early as possible before the opposing king has gotten very far because he probably trusts that the further that that king has went, uh, the angrier he's going to be. The less likely he's going to want to come to terms of peace after he's mobilized his army, uh, made this long trip. In fact, there's a possibility that if the king makes it uh, most of the way or the whole way, that he's going to say, no, you wanted to fight and I've got my whole army out here and we're all prepared for battle. We're going to battle. So let's get, it, get this on. I'm not settling for peace here. And so Jesus says that if you're a wise king, you're going to try to settle with that king when he's some distance out before he gets close enough that really there's no turning back. Now, the spiritual application from both of these parables, you kind of wonder, well, why were you explaining that with such detail about the opposing king and determining as early as possible to settle for terms of peace? Because that's the point Jesus is making with these metaphors. He's saying it is best to figure out as early as possible whether you really want to follow Christ. Do not wait until some amount of the building is built, or do not wait until that army has already traveled some number uh, of miles to come to this decision. You need to decide as early as possible. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. Jesus wants people to first sit down and count the cost so that part two, believers persevere. So that part two, believers persevere. There are two sides to Jesus's teaching. There is a side for unbelievers and there's a side for believers. And let me make both sides very clear. He's discouraging unbelievers from following him so that they won't start and then stop. Well, in a sense, he's doing the opposite for believers. He's encouraging believers to follow him by telling us what's involved so that we would persevere. As much as these illustrations are intended to let unbelievers know what's involved in following Jesus so that they don't try to, these metaphors are equally intended to let believers know what is involved in following Jesus so that we don't later what? Fall away. What shapes our experiences largely? It is our expectations. It is our uh, anticipation about what's going to be involved in something that if you expect something to be bad and then it ends up being bad, it's not as bad for you because you expected it to be bad. <laughs> but if you expect something to be good and then it's bad, then it's particularly bad because your expectations were not met. And so the point is, when you know the cost in following, involved in following Christ, then what? There's much better chance of you persevering. And that's why I think it's so incredibly important to encourage people to count the cost. And, I'm, it's, and you know what? When I say that, I'll be candid with you. When I say, oh, I think it's so important, it doesn't really matter what I think. The fact is, Jesus thinks it's important for people to count the cost. Don't, don't leave here thinking, well, Pastor Scott said it's really important for people to count the cost. It doesn't matter what I think. Christ is the one that says people should count the cost. That's why we know it's so important for people to do so. And these illustrations are intended to provide expectations that will shape experiences. Because when you come to Christ and you think that Christ wants nothing more than to make your life as wonderful as possible and you never suffer again, you're going to have an entirely different Christian experience than the person who becomes a Christian thinking about what Jesus said in John 16, that in the world you will have tribulations and trials and suffering. Because then when it happens, it hurts, it's painful, but you expected it, and you can persevere easier. So both illustrations, they involve foresight, or they involve looking ahead. Jesus wants us to have the foresight not to be like the failed tower builder who starts building something and then has to stop. Instead, he wants us to have the foresight of the king who knows ahead of time not to go to battle but instead seeks for terms of peace. And in both illustrations, foresight is needed. It's like Jesus says, I don't want you to start and stop, so think about what's involved so you can persevere. And this brings us to lesson, or verse 33. Verse 33, he says, So therefore, any of you, he's shaping our expectations here, letting us know what's involved. He says, If there's any of you who does not renounce 
all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. The word therefore always causes us to see what it's there for or causes us to look back on what was previously written. And the idea is that those who are not willing to count the cost, as Jesus said in the previous verses, are not going to be willing to renounce all that they have, as Jesus said in this verse. And so he's saying, don't even start following me if you're not willing to renounce or forsake all that you have. And let me explain this word, uh, the Greek word for renounce. It's apatoso, and it means to bid farewell or to say goodbye to. And I'll give you one example of its use. Luke 9, 61. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell. That's apatoso. Say farewell or bid farewell to those in my house. And so with the context being counting the cost, Jesus is saying, nobody can be my disciple if they're not willing to bid farewell or say goodbye, if there's any of your possessions that you would not say goodbye to. So Jesus says, if you sit there and there's at least one thing in your life that you know you would not part with as my disciple, then you cannot be my disciple. And we see a perfect example of this. Jesus was talking to an individual And he said, you need to be willing to part with your wealth if you want to be my disciple. And what happened? The rich young ruler said, I'm not going to do it. And so that rich young ruler never even started. The seed, he never even started growing. There was no spiritual growth because Jesus shared with him at the very beginning what was expected. And he said, I'm not going to do that. The cost that you just presented to me is too much. So his journey as a disciple never even began. Basically, Jesus did in that account exactly what he's saying should be done here. He told the rich young ruler to count the cost, and when the rich young ruler counted it, it wasn't a cost that he was willing to pay. Now, it looks like Jesus is going to make a pretty abrupt teaching here. Sometimes you're kind of reading, well, it doesn't have to be just the Gospels. It can be almost anywhere in the Bible, and you look like you're talking about one thing, and then it kind of looks like you jump to something else, and you can't, might not be able to follow the train of thought very easily. And this is one of those situations, but I believe in a moment I will, I'll hopefully be able to point out to you or help you explain the flow of thought here. Because it kind of looks like he's talking about discipleship and counting the cost. And now in verse 34, he starts talking about salt. And you're like, okay, I'm not sure that I totally see the connection between salt and counting the cost or discipleship. But look with me and then I'll explain it. Verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So just like earlier, it it sounded like Jesus was talking about construction or going to battle. Now it sounds like he's talking about salt, but he does something here that lets us know that he's not just talking to people who care about learning about salt. At the end of the verse, at the end of verse 35, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which means whether you care about learning about salt or not, if you have ears, you need to be listening to what Jesus is saying, because this is much greater than just a discussion of salt. There's spiritual truth from this, and it's very reminiscent to Jesus's words on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except being thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And this brings us to lesson three. Christians share similarities with salt. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Christians share similarities with salt. I was surprised to learn this. Maybe some of you already knew this, but Salt used to be one of the most useful commodities on earth. It was far more valuable in Jesus's day than it is in our uh, technologically advanced day of electricity and refrigeration. Salt was so useful that it used to be traded ounce for ounce or pound for pound with gold, so, in a, which reveals one of the other uses for salt. Salt was used as a currency, and that's where we get... Um, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this correctly, but salarium argentum. It's where we get our English word salary and we get the phrase worth his salt. 
when we talk about someone being worth his salt, they would talk about Roman soldiers being paid in salt, and they would say that he was worth the salt that he was being paid. So think about that. You could be paid gold or you could be paid salt. In Jesus' day, that's how valuable salt was. Now, I want to help you understand what salt was like in Jesus' day so you can understand why Jesus compares us with salt. Now, first and most notably, and you kind of have to imagine in Jesus' day, there are far less seasonings than there are in our day, and food is considerably blander than it is in our day, and so salt was important just because of the improvement it provided to food or the way that it seasoned food. Well, guess who, guess not what, but guess who else is supposed to season or provide seasoning? We are, in a sense. Christians are supposed to season our environment, or you could say it like this. The way that salt influences or seasons food, Christians are to season or influence the environment around us. When Christians are introduced into a situation or scenario, we should provide a Christian influence that changes that scenario uh, for the better, for Christ. Colossians 4, 6, your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. Second, salt was one of the very few preservatives. If, if all of the electricity was turned off and none of us had refrigerators, can you imagine the value of salt like overnight, or not even overnight, immediately, the value that salt would have to us? Well, in Jesus' day, salt preserved fish, meat, olives, cheese, pickled vegetables, throughout the entire year, everywhere in the world, but it was especially valuable in the Middle East where it was uh, hotter and, and food would spoil so quickly because of the, the um, climate. Now, just like salt preserves food, Christians are to preserve others, in a sense, for eternity by spreading the gospel. And when salt is removed, food spoils. Well, if you think about Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, when he talks about the church being removed from the earth, what does he say basically happens to the earth? What is restraining right now? What is Now, there's wickedness in the world, but if the church was removed, that wave of wickedness would be incredibly worse than it is now. The only reason that the world is not worse than it is is because of the restraint that Christians or the church provides. And that's why when the church is removed, in the event we know is the rapture, there is this onslaught of wickedness or this wave of wickedness that just pours over the church because in the absence of the church is the absence of Christ's influence. It's the removal of Christ's arms and his legs, his hands, his feet, his eyes, and his ears, the body of Christ removed from the earth when all the Christians are removed. And so in that sense that salt preserves, so too does the church preserve or protect the world from spoiling or being decaying or brought into that level of wickedness that we're not really going to know, uh, or we won't even know, assuming we're raptured, until the tribulation becomes, until the tribulation comes. Now, third, salt healed. It served as an antiseptic. You've probably heard the phrase, pouring salt on a wound. Now, before the days of iodine and other antiseptics, salt was used to protect people from infection. And so just like salt could heal, spiritually speaking, disciples of Christ should heal. Now, we don't heal ourselves, but we heal by pointing people toward the great physician. We can't heal people spiritually, but we can point them to Christ. We can share God's word with them. We can share the gospel with them to see spiritual healing take place. So in that sense, we are like salt in that we provide healing, not physically, but spiritually. And there's one other similarity between salt and people, but first I want you to notice this. One of the themes in this sermon up to this point sounds like people can lose their salvation. One of the themes up to this point in the sermon sounds like people can lose their salvation. For example, we talked about seed that landed on two soils and started growing and then stopped. Even one of the soils where it says that the soil believed for a little while and then stopped. Jesus talked about building, where there are individuals who start building but then stop. And then third, he talks about salt that can lose its saltiness or that can lose its taste, as though people were salty or saved, but then they lost their saltiness or lost their salvation. And does this mean that they were saved and then they stopped being saved, or does this mean that they lost their salvation? The answer brings us to lesson four. 
Only apostates lose their saltiness. Only apostates lose their saltiness. I would say a good principle to understand is if there are ever individuals who looked like they lost their salvation, those are people who have committed apostasy. Those are people who were never saved. They looked that way, and, any, and there are times, and we'll look at one of the premier accounts in Scripture, when it can almost look like it's talking about someone believing or being a believer and then an unbeliever. These are descriptions of apostates. Pure salt cannot lose its effectiveness. Pure salt cannot lose its taste. But what's interesting is Jesus taught this in the Middle East, I just learned this this past week, and the salt that was common in Jesus's day came from around the Dead Sea. And it was contaminated with gypsum and other materials that could cause it to be ineffective or could cause it to lose its taste. And so when you had salt in Jesus's day, you didn't know whether it was pure salt or not. You didn't know whether it was compromised and would, would become ineffective or lose its taste in the future. Now, if that happened, interestingly, if that happened to the salt, then it created a disposal problem. And Jesus talked about this disposal problem. Look in verse 35 again. He said, you can't take the salt and put it in the soil. And why couldn't you? Because it destroyed the vegetation, right? He even says you can't put it on the manure pile. Now, that might sound odd to us, but they're going to use the manure pile for fertilizer, and you can't put the salt there because then again, that's going to destroy the vegetation. And in a day when vegetation is basically life because they can't go to the nearest Walmart and buy all the food that they want, it was very important to preserve as much food as possible. So as soon as you, it sounds odd to us that there would be a disposal problem with salt, but there really was for people in Jesus's day, and he's talking about that. So instead, it has to be thrown away or put someplace isolated, and really this is a euphemism for going to hell or being cast into hell. And this brings us to the fourth similarity between salt and people, or at least unbelievers. Just like pure salt cannot lose its taste or saltiness, true believers or pure believers cannot lose their saltiness, or they cannot become unsaved or lose their salvation. And this allows us to connect the dots or see the flow of thought between verses 26 through 33 and then verses 34 and 35, which could look unrelated up to this point. And here's the flow of thought. If Jesus was talking about believers, they would not stop. They would start and they would continue or persevere. They would not lose their saltiness. If Jesus isn't talking about believers, then who is he talking about? He's talking about apostates. Briefly look at verse 25 to see why he would talk about apostates. Verse 20, Luke 14, 25 says, Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. When Jesus looked at these great crowds following him, what is one thing that Jesus knew about many of them? That they were not going to continue following him that he was going to turn in the future and look, and many of them were not going to be there. And we looked at some of those accounts were massive numbers, at least in John 6, thousands or maybe tens of thousands of people stopped following him. And you get the impression Jesus looks and all he sees is the disciples. And he says to them, are you going to stop following me as well? And Peter, one of the times that he's, you know, Peter, every time he opens his mouth, it's like a home run or a strikeout, right? And at this time it's a home run. And he's like, where would we go if we don't follow you? But you can tell that before that, all these massive crowds had abandoned Christ. And so he looks, so in verse 25, great crowds, and he knows many of them are apostates. They look like disciples because they're following him, but he knows they're going to fall away. And that's what apostasy is. Let's understand, apostasy is, or an apostate is not someone who hasn't heard the gospel. You could say that's an unreached person. We have unreached people groups. There are no apostates in unreached people groups, because apostates are people who have heard, people who would say they did believe for a time and then fell away. So they are the soils that grew and then died. They're the building that started and then stopped. They were salty. They're the salt that was salty and then lost its saltiness. And listen to this. Both of the times that Jesus talked about salt losing its saltiness 
what did he also say about it when he said if salt loses its saltiness what else did he say it cannot be restored matthew 5 13 you're the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall the saltiness be restored and it's rhetorical in other words it can't be luke 14 34 salt is good but if salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness be restored so if saltiness can't be restored what does this mean it means when people commit apostasy there's no turning back from that people cannot commit apostasy and then be restored to salvation at a later time apostasy is is um, an act that it is impossible to return from go ahead and turn to hebrews 6. we won't return to luke 14. we're going to look at some verses that some people consider to be uh, some of the most confusing in scripture the most important thing I can tell you about these verses so that they can be interpreted correctly is this and it's so important I just want you to I'm even have you just look at me to make sure you hear me say this perfectly clearly and don't miss this Hebrews 6 I don't even see everyone looking at me that's how important it is I want everyone to look at me Hebrews 6 4 through 6 is not describing believers it is describing apostates if you can understand that hebrews 6 4 through 6 is describing apostates and not believers then i believe you can actually pretty easily even interpret them listen to this verse or wait if what what do apostates look like prior to apostasy this is important what do apostates look like prior to apostasy they look like believers first john so in other words if there's going to be verses like hebrews 6 4 through 6 that describe apostates to a point they're going to sound like those verses are describing believers because apostates look like believers for a season and the premier verse capturing this situation don't turn there but first john 2 19 they went out from us but they did not really belong to us for if they had belonged to us they would have remained with us but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us but here's the thing they looked like believers until they went out john's point is it was only them going out that revealed that they were apostates or revealed that they were not believers up until that point they blended in they looked like sheep they look like wheat versus chaff or sheep versus goats or believers versus unbelievers they looked like pure salt versus salt that loses its saltiness they look like seed that's going to continue growing and the point is apostates look like believers which is why these verses in hebrews about apostates look like they're describing believers john macarthur said there is no mention of the people in these verses being saved and they are not described with any terms that apply to believers such as holy born again righteous or saints there are ways that when people are described in scripture you know believers are in view when they're called holy righteous saints born again and there's none of those terms or phrases that identify saved individuals in verses four through six so they're unbelievers who are involved in christian activity but then they turn from christ and we can probably all think of people like this you have seen people who were uh, fairly zealous or passionate about christ they could have been heavily involved in the body uh, they could have been, even appeared to be doing wonderful things for the lord i mean you think about the um, josh harris and the um, incredible things that he he had done i mean some of the teaching where you're just you know moved by his ability to exposit god's word and uh you don't even have to wonder if he's an apostate he's the one who professed his apostasy or acknowledged that by any definition he cannot see himself as a christian and now has moved not only from rejecting christ to criticizing slandering christians and so the point is before that though he looked like he was being or not looked like but he was appeared to be being used by god in wonderful ways and that's what's in view here in verses four through six look in verse four for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit 
We're going to deal with the first half of the verse later. For now, we'll come back to it. For now, look at the second half of the verse. Enlightened. That doesn't mean saved. It means that they received biblical truth. This is important. Understanding the gospel, even being able to tell people what the gospel is, is not the same as believing the gospel or being converted by the gospel. There are plenty of people who could give a very clear gospel presentation and have not been converted or saved by the gospel. Being able to explain something is not the same as believing something. So they have been enlightened by it, but not saved by it. When it says tasted of the heavenly gift, tasted means experienced, and the heavenly gift is referring to Jesus. Many people, and understand the author of Hebrews was saying this in a time when people had tasted or experienced Jesus in his first coming. And so when it says tasted the heavenly gift, it means experienced Jesus during his earthly ministry, but were not saved. Think about the people in Luke 14 who had been following Jesus. Share it in the Holy Spirit. The whole, who, who is the Holy Spirit working on? Who is the Holy Spirit convicting of sin? John 16 says the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. Right before the religious leaders stoned Stephen, what did he look at them and say? You are people who always do what? Resist the Holy Spirit. And then they resisted it further by picking up stones and murdering him. But the point is, you have Stephen telling these clearly unbelievers that they had been resisting the Holy Spirit's work in their life. I think it's Acts 7, verse 51. And so, to say shared in the Holy Spirit is just to say that the Holy Spirit had worked on their lives, but they resisted or blasphemed that work. Look at verse 5. It says, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age. And if you pause it, just think about this. What is the only way someone could blaspheme the Holy Spirit? You couldn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit except that you had some knowledge or experience that you could deny or reject. And that is what people are doing when they have shared but blaspheme. Verse 5, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Tasted the goodness of the word of God is referring to people who hear God's word. They are excited by it. They are enthusiastic about it, but they stop believing it later. The powers of the age to come refer to God's supernatural power, which some people experienced during Jesus' earthly ministry when he performed miracles. And now look at verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So after all they experienced, after everything described in the previous two verses, they fell away. And if you write in your Bible, you can circle the words fell away, draw a little line, and write apostasy because that's what apostasy is. It's when people have fallen away from the truth. Now, I want to connect the dots by getting you to look back at the beginning. Verse 4 says, it is impossible. For it is impossible. And that word impossible means just that. It's as literal as it sounds. It's saying this cannot happen. We're not talking about something difficult. We're talking about something that cannot occur. And it says, it is impossible. And then you go to verse 6. After they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance which connected to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 13 and Luke 14, 34, is why salt, after it has lost its taste, it cannot be restored. Or in other words, after people have committed apostasy, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, something interesting, when I was, I was saved and I was in some more, let's say, Arminian circles, they were convinced people could lose their salvation, and they would look to these verses and they would point to them as evidence that people could lose their salvation. But here's what, if you, if you thought these verses taught that people could lose their salvation, which I do not believe they teach, but if you taught that, you also have to acknowledge that if people lost their salvation, then what? They can never get it back again. Or it would be impossible for them to later be saved after having lost that salvation. But I never heard anyone say that. I never heard anyone be that, that honest with the text. So even though I don't think these verses say you can lose your salvation, if you happen to think that, then you also better tell people that if they lost it, they can never get it back. Because these verses are saying it is impossible 
to restore them again to repentance. And why would it say that? Because once you have turned from Christ, where can you go to be saved? Once you have fallen away from Christ, what is option B? What's the second door you can look behind to be saved? There isn't one. So that's the point. If you fall away from Christ, you find salvation no place else. You can't go to Hinduism. You can't go to Buddhism. You can't go to a workspace religion like Mormonism. If you abandon the gospel or you abandon Christ, you cannot find salvation anyplace else. Acts 4.12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved, which is why the author of Hebrews is speaking to these Hebrew readers who had familiarity with Christ, and he says, if you abandon Christ, it will be impossible for you to find repentance and salvation anyplace else because you have abandoned the only name by which men can be saved. And I want to conclude by asking you to listen again to this verse, Luke 14, 32. It says, while the king is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. And so here's what I would say. What kind of people go up against a king that they can't defeat? Only the most foolish. It is only the most foolish people who would ever contend with a king that they cannot defeat. Any person with even the smallest amount of wisdom is going to do what? They're going to seek terms of peace before they face that king and lose. Now, is there a king that we're going to face? Could you go to war with him and win? No, you cannot. So you need to seek terms of peace before you stand before him. Seek terms of peace, and you can do that through Christ. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, then you will stand before the king someday, and it will be war. It will be a battle that you will lose. In other words, you will stand before him as his enemy. But if you are a Christian, then you will face that king as a loving father who views you as one of his sons or daughters and sees you through the very righteousness of his son. You will be as accepted or received by that king as his son, Jesus Christ, is received by him. If you've never considered the cost before, today is the day for you to do that and to decide how you want to stand before that king someday. I will be at front after service. If you have any questions about anything I've shared or I could pray for you in any way, I consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you so much for the way of peace that you have provided. We want to be come to terms of peace with you. We would never want to stand before you as your, as your enemy. We've, I think of Psalm 2 and the nations raging and how futile their efforts are, Lord. And, and so we desire to stand before you and be received as one of your sons or daughters with, uh, able to see you as a loving heavenly father, which you are for those who are Christians, Lord. And if there's any here who are still your enemy, then I pray they would count the cost and consider what it means to go to war with you because that's really what they're doing as your enemy. We thank you for the privilege or the incredible blessing of being able to be at peace with you, your son Jesus, and what he did for us on the cross. And we ask this in his name. Amen.